This is On Deck, conversations about entrepreneurship with Les Deck. A couple of weeks ago, I had a chance to sit down and have an interview with Leo Batari. Leo is an award-winning author, speaker, and learning facilitator. Some of the books that he's written are Peer Innovation, What Anyone Can Do, and The Power of Peers, and they're all terrific books. Leo had some great thoughts for us on our post-COVID world and leadership change, and also the productivity conversation of uh, shall we bring people back to the office or can we allow them to continue to work remote? We discussed the role of uh, coaching versus traditional management and what young workers are really expecting and the value that they bring. Enjoy. Welcome, Leo. Good to have you here today. Les, it's great to be here. Now we get to have one of these conversations with a whole lot more listeners this time. It'll be great. Yeah, there will be more listeners for sure. So I looked over what you've been thinking about recently, and I noticed a blog on uh, leadership change, what's the same and what's different. And uh, that might be a good place to start. Yeah, I think it really is. You know, it occurred to me when I was looking recently that the sixth edition of the Leadership Challenge, written by Jim Cousins and Barry Posner in 1987. And that book was based on a number of years of research where they essentially asked leaders, what were you practicing as a leader where you felt you were your best self as a leader? And these five exemplary leadership practices kept coming up over and over again. It was modeling the way, inspiring a shared vision, challenging the process, enabling others to act, and encouraging the heart. So there they are, laid right out there in 1987. Then you have a second edition, a third, fourth, fifth, and sixth. Exemplary leadership practices have all stayed the same, but they've been contemporized, of course, with stories and all of that that kind of bring it into uh, something that when someone reads it in 2022, you know, it feels uh, in terms of the examples and all that, that, you know, it connects. The interesting part, though, is when I'm in CEO group meetings, for example, and you have many CEOs, many of whom are baby boomers who are thinking, I just don't understand the millennial generation. I don't understand Gen Z. I'm not oh. getting all of this and what's going on. And what's fascinating, and it occurred to me that the fundamentals of leadership really haven't changed since Jim Cousins and Barry Posner wrote them in 1987, and I think well before that. What has changed, though, I think, is how people want to be led. And I'll, I'll point to something very simple. That there's, I think, a number of factors in terms of things going on in the world or whatever. But just think about how kids are parented, you know, and, you know, like how I was parented, right? Authoritarian household. When mom or dad said it, there was no democracy. It was boom. This is it. This is what you're doing. You followed orders. You did your thing. And that was kind of how life was. Uh, when you went into the job market, you would be just listening to the elders and trying to you know, become schooled on what it was like in the company and kind of work your way up and work your way through. It was good things come to those who wait. I think about my daughters today. Um, because think about it, like the conversations, even at the dinner table back then, at least in my generation, were not very much considering the opinions of, of, uh, the kids around the table of what was going on in the world. By the same token, however, I think about my daughters growing up in a completely different world than I grew up. Right. I mean, I grew up during the Vietnam war. These kids are growing up during nine 11, 
you know, completely different. And when you look at the, the technology they grew up with, every aspect of society and what that looks like and how it shaped their views was entirely different. So I think, I think rightly so, parents of our generation felt like, hey, we have things to learn from our kids. We want to hear their voice. We want to know what has shaped their views and their values on things. And, um, you know, as a result, you have now kids who are going into the workplace who, by the way, don't have to wait five years before they can add value. They're typically adding value right away. They deliver everything when it comes to collaboration, social media skills and relationship building and digital marketing and all these kinds of things. So my daughters would tell you not good things come to those who wait, good things come to those who act. And and they're very purpose-driven and, and driven by different um, ideas. So in many respects, if you just, even in this one small example of the relationship they are used to having with their parents, not authoritarian at all. So they're certainly not going to expect that in a workplace. So they want a voice and they want to feel that they uh, can contribute. And I think leaders need to understand that very dynamic in many respects and how to go about, and you use the word all the time, which is coaching. You know, how do we coach and how do we create intentional dialogue? So it isn't just understanding them better, but millennials understanding us better, Gen Z understanding us better. I I think uh, that uh, when I watch uh, millennials in action uh, with uh, uh, with the uh, older generations, like four generations in the workplace now. Right. If you count me, five. But um, right. Uh, anyway, what they first notice is that these kids are uh, technical natives. Um, they yes. know everything digital. Um, and so that's the first, um, I think, superlative skill that they notice. Um, and then they begin to notice other things if their minds are open. Yeah, I agree. And again, it's it's being open. It's not being, you know, measuring or trying to evaluate someone based on what's important to me and how I grew up. It's kind of understanding where they come from and what that's all about and trying to uncover those special gifts uh, that they have to bring to the table, which are going to be different. Yes, absolutely. Thankfully. Yes. (laughs) <laughs> yes. <laughs> we do live in a dynamic world nowadays. And, um, you know, there there is uh, uh, certainly an event that uh, defines the start and the growing up period of uh, most generations. I think in the current generation, there, there may be several events that uh, define their lives as they move forward. We're, we're living in a, an interesting, uh, dangerous and fast moving place. Well, we are, you know, and there's lots of change and it is, that is the constant for sure. And, you know, one of the things that comes up all the time is people will say, hey, people don't like change. And the reality, I think, is that people don't so much resist change. They resist being changed. Um, you know, when you're in control of the change, you're okay. You know, you're feeling pretty good about that. You're, you're driving it. When it's when it's coming at you, it's a little di- bit of a different ballgame. And I think, you know, employees feel that w- as well when, when we think about things like they talk about loyalty or being engaged and all these other kinds of things. And the reality is that this isn't like, you know, say my parents or, or people who, you know, would go and work at a company for 40 years, you know, and you'd get the gold watch at the end, or there was all this, this tenure that, that tended to happen. Um, now everything's uh, like, what are the quarterly results? And, 
if if yeah. we get acquired by someone or there's private equity or other kinds of things that you can change the dynamics very, very quickly. And people have come to understand, young people have come to understand that, you know, these quote, you know, professional relationships we have, the, these jobs are are a bit tenuous. Yeah. You know, you just mentioned uh, this business of potentially getting acquired. Used to be uh, during the 70s, uh, when there was so much uh, uh, consolidation of companies and so much hostile takeover activity, et cetera, that nobody knew about that stuff except those few folks in the C-suite. Right. Now it's spread all the way through the organization. And if a company is going to be for sale in the next 24 months or the next 36 months, um, director level and on down know that. Sure. And, and are working toward that end. I, that's an amazing difference uh, to me. It used to be a secret. And it used to be a secret on uh, uh, the assumption that if people thought the company was going to be sold, they'd jump out, leave. Yeah. And and the other thing is people who, in today's world, believe they can keep a secret or believe that things are going to be secret or, <laughs> or uh, you know, that, that's not a, not a great strategy. So you've got to lean into that a little bit. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Um, very interesting. And I'm noticing that change myself, uh, uh, that people want to be coached. And you mentioned a while ago, they want to be coached in their own way, in different ways that they prefer. Um, I'm trying to uh, make as many coaches as I can. Not professional coaches, mm. people who know how to uh, employ the fundamentals of uh, coaching rather than management. I think management is going to... Uh, you know, uh, leave a lot of people at the altar. Uh, it, um, the, the precepts that we used to think about uh, management and also uh, about um, evaluating performance uh, are um, going to be wholly different very fast. Yeah, that's true. And and by the way, I think the coaching model you're talking about, here's another example, kind of plays into what we talked about too in terms of how leaders want to be led and what their experiences are. It's less of an authoritarian model in school than it ever used to be, right? Mm -hmm. It used to be that the teacher would get up, they'd lecture, you take notes, you take a test, you write a paper, you do these kinds of things. And it was very much a student-teacher relationship, right? Collaborative learning would have been called cheating, you know, essentially back, you know, X number of years ago. <laughs> so, you know, here you are, um, you know, today, however, in a situation where it's not so much about a teaching environment, it's it's professors and teachers trying to create learning environments, recognizing that when students can work with one another, they help each other learn more effectively. It's all social learning theory and what this is all about. So I think they are used to this idea of learning environments and as and and being coached as opposed to being told. So I think that that I think leans heavily into what you're doing and how effective your work is in organizations when you can get people to create those learning environments and be coaches and just ask great questions and let people kind of come to their own understanding of things sometimes uh, can be really remarkable. I'm sure. Well, we're going to notice more change as we go forward. Brings up speed uh, and um, this um, 159 challenge that I know that you're well read on. And so would you just uh, go through that with us and explain what that's all about? 
Yeah, it was the NES 159 challenge. There's a documentary. I was, you know, I travel a lot and I'm looking at the free entertainment on the plane. And there was a documentary called The Last Milestone. And it's the story of Iliad Kipchoge and his work with the Ineos 159 Challenge. Now, Iliad Kipchoge is the world record holder in the marathon. I believe the time is like 201.39 under race conditions. The idea, however, of this Ineos team was to try to put together an ensemble of experts, everybody from physiotherapists to nutritionists to running coaches to everybody you can think of, and see what they could do to make the smallest of changes and to give Kipchoge the advantage that would actually help him run a sub two hour marathon, something just that's been unheard of, you know, and certainly something no one ever thought would ever be achieved, at least by the way, if you follow the trajectory of the world record for another 20 or 30 years. So here it is, they, they create these conditions and Sir Dave Brailsford is the CEO of this initiative. And I think one of the fascinating leadership lessons about this was, first of all, there was the goal really clear. You got to get under two hours. Okay. <laughs> the purpose, however, was bigger than that. It was basically to tell everybody, no matter what walk of life you come from, no matter what vocation and where you work, we're going to show you what, what is possible. We're going to look and get you thinking about human potential in an all new way, right? Mm -hmm. By breaking a record that people thought clearly unbreakable. Um, and sure enough, they go through the whole process. It was 159.40. Uh, he completes the race. But one of the things Sir Dave Brailsford did as a leader was he was clear on the goal and the purpose. But what he did was he went to every single person on the team. Um, and again, more as a coach than a CEO. And he would ask them, what is it about what we're doing here that connects with you personally? He he believes that, hey, this whole notion that there's no I in team is ridiculous. Of course, there's an I in team. There are people, they're all individuals. They have their own desires and cares and um, things that inspire them. So he said, but once I was able to help them connect their personal purpose and goals and mission with the larger piece, it drove up the engagement for everybody on the team. And I thought that was a particularly powerful lesson when we think about team dynamics and coaching and working together and sometimes doing so where, where if each of us can just be a little bit better in our area, not big stuff, just a lot of people doing a lot of things just a little bit better, that what's possible is just rather extraordinary. So it's a for if people haven't seen the documentary, uh, The Last Milestone, it's certainly worth watching. And then the Ineos 159 Challenge website will give you all of the information regarding the various leadership lessons and all that are with it. And I, I just felt it was an extraordinary uh, example and something that I use, by the way, um, in the certification program I just ran for peer innovation. I used that particular case and I would ask and I would challenge the people who were taking the uh, the course to connect all of the peer innovation models with what Brailsford did. And of course, it overlays beautifully with everything that goes on there. So it's a, it's a fun exercise. Uh, tell us a little more about uh, the peer innovation certification, Leo. Uh, I was I yeah. wanted to try to participate in that. I was into something else at the moment that you were <laughs> doing it, but uh, go ahead. Yeah, it, it was great fun. It was basically a six-week program, um, just about an hour and a half to two hours per session. Uh, there were we had nine people in our first cohort from four different countries, and their goal in many respects was they were all coaches and they did a lot of individual coaching. And then what they wanted to do is be able to come into companies and not just coach individuals, but be able to help their teams. 
So peer innovation is a way to do that. Now, there's a lot of team building programs out there and all of that. Where peer innovation is unique is that, as you know, it comes from you know, more than a decade of research on CEO peer advisory groups. And the reality and what's been, I think, you know, revealed time and time again is what these groups do so brilliantly together uh, applies to high-performing teams as well. So what I've done essentially through peer innovation is taking these principles, built a number of models and frameworks that allow leaders to have very intentional conversations with their own people using a five-factor framework that really unlocks a lot of what the team wants for itself and how to go about getting what they want, but owning that solution, I think, in a very powerful way. Yeah, it seems to me that the the peer group and the power of the peer group uh, is, uh, uh, which we used to think of as uh, CEO groups, uh, where we came from. Leo is a former top executive with uh, Vistage, Vistage Worldwide. And uh, as many of you know, I was a 16-year chair. And in today's world, not only do we have key groups, which is the second in command, but many of the people that I work with in coaching value their own peer groups, a group of people at a similar level interspersed with uh, you know somebody from above and somebody below. Huge power in that. What do you think? No question about it. Um, you know, back in 1992, there's a great story about A.T.N. Wenger and Jean Lave, who was a, a cultural anthropologist, and they went to Africa and they were there to study the relationship between the master and the apprentices. And what they quickly found to be far more interesting was the relationship the apprentices among one another and how they helped each other hone their craft. Mm-hmm. And this is where this idea of communities of practice uh, came about. And that they have this shared domain, if you will. So I don't care if you're looking to be, you know, a a bricklayer, an artist, um, a CEO, whatever you know your common um, purpose for for being there, whatever common challenge or chair that you happen to be sitting in, and operating from that place and working with one another. So you've got diverse perspectives with a common set of values about what it takes to be a good contributor in that environment. And magic happens. And to your point, whether it's a CEO group or a group of key executives who you know, are challenged to manage up and manage down, if you will, and across. And so um, for them to be able to share what their world looks like, regardless of what industry they happen to be in, it's it's eye opening because as you well know it's we we can really get heads down in our own industry pretty easily and when we see other practices elsewhere that we're like wow that's unheard of in our industry but boy that could work for us and by the way maybe if we did that it could actually be a competitive differentiator for us so there's so much to be learned in that regard yeah the next competitive differentiator that's uh, what everyone is uh, looking for I tend to tell them it's accountability, that the cheapest way to find an unfair competitive advantage uh, is to make sure that you have an accountable culture. In my mind, uh, that's part of peer groups as well. Are you encountering that? Yes. Um, I would only, my only caveat would be to, I think, define what a healthy culture of accountability looks like. 
And that isn't to put people in the anxiety zone and not give them a voice and make them feel like they're playing defense every day. As you well know, it's much more about having them enjoy psychological safety, accept personal responsibility for bringing their best and be accountable to one another in that way. Not only from a quote accountability standpoint, but the more we share, the better we communicate, the more we learn because learning opportunities get lost when we don't uh, participate. So when we do make a mistake, it's okay. We dust ourselves off, we learn from it, we move on. And I think the learning part is important. And uh, there's a great poster, by the way, that I use every once in a while in meetings. If you remember those old posters from Sky Mall, sure. you know, they're the inspirational posters and they have these lofty kinds of you know beautiful photography and all this. Well, there's a website called despair.com that has a poster and the word on it is mistakes. And there's a there's like a ship that almost looks like the Titanic that's pretty much vertical. It's halfway down in the water. And it says, you know, some people's lives are um, often just to serve as a warning for others. And so I think sometimes when we can make a mistake and we can be transparent about it, maybe we're helping someone else avoid that sometime in their life someday. And that's okay. That's an example you don't want to be. You made a really good point about uh, accountability, Leo. Uh, it is, I think, uh, uh, one of the least understood mechanisms. And the connotation of the word is bad on both sides. It's, uh, I got to be a hard butt on one side or I have to be vulnerable on the other. And uh, the first thing I do is explain what accountability truly is and how to get there. Not to go off on that tangent, but uh, it's a, a really good point and, and certainly has to do with uh, coaching in every respect. Absolutely. Okay. So I guess uh, I would ask you, uh, with you, what's next? You seem to be uh, moving rapidly in a, in a fast world. Uh, and I know that you have taken your sphere of influence to China recently. So uh, talk about that a little bit and what's next for you. Yeah, we uh, we did have the book uh, published in China, which is great. Three of the people in the cohort that we had for our certification program were from China, one from New Zealand, one from Canada, the rest from the U.S. So, yeah, we're just trying to bring peer innovation as best we can around the world so people kind of recognize. And I think right now it's particularly uh, relevant especially as people are coming out of COVID and they're trying to figure out how do we be productive moving forward? What does that look like? In some cases, you have people mandating that everyone return to the office. In other cases, people are staying remote. They're going hybrid, whatever that looks like. But this can be a conversation you can have with everyone who who is participating in this and really take an inclusive leadership approach that allows people to have a voice in terms of you know, how we make sure that we are productive, that our quality standards and our values and all of those things that we are adhering to those things. And by the same token, maybe swimming with the current a little bit and trying to figure out with the people we have, with the tools we have today, can we be maybe more productive doing things differently than we did obviously pre-2020? So this is, I think, a, a wonderful opportunity for people to come together to have a very specific framework about how to have those conversations, which is, I think, what peer innovation really does, um, you know, is why it's so effective. And, you know, that becomes um, that becomes huge. So the future in many respects now is I'm starting to do a lot more work 
with companies of all sizes, some, you know, Fortune 100 and others uh, that are small to mid-sized companies who recognize the need for this kind of work. So that's what's next right now. And we're just just going to do it do I can. In fact, the demand of it is such that I can't do it all myself, which is why the certification program even happened. Uh, it was the idea of let's see if we can't get other folks out there to deliver peer innovation as only they can in many respects. You know, one of the things that had come up in the program was people would say, like, it's like the second or third time, you know, module. And they're like, look, we're, we're never going to do this the way you do it. I mean, you created this stuff, right? And I'm like, well, I hope you wouldn't do it the way I would do it. We we had we had someone who was U.S. Navy captain there. We had someone who had international business experience that I've only read about. We've got we had people who. So part of a key initiative in this course was to was every single module we had somebody connect a personal story or a personal experience with the work, so they can start making it a part of who they are and not look like it's turning in somebody else's homework. And when that started to happen, you start people seeing people express these models and express this value proposition through their world. It makes it not only more authentic for them, but it also makes it more credible for the client. So it was really exciting uh, to watch that transformation. Much richer experience than yes. uh, rote learning. That's uh, certainly consistent with what I'm finding as well. I'm changing all of my training programs so that they try to take the best advantage of uh, neural connections. We're always dealing with that hard filter inside of someone's brain uh, that we don't know, and some of which uh, has no language even. It's just based on feelings. Uh, and then they modify some information and may bring it back through that filter and actually change the filter, which is what we're hoping to do. But we also know as trainers that uh, uh, something like 75% of what we teach people disappears in about 10 days. Makes, makes it difficult to be a trainer today. So, And stories are very powerful. And uh, the use of other people's stories I find to be the best tool I have. Yeah, this is where the, the peer learning is so effective about exactly what you're talking about is when we take in information, particularly if it's any kind of a passive environment, uh, Josh Burson did a, a study on this, you know, kind of relying on this idea of the, I think it's called the, the, the Ebbinghaus learn, uh, forgetting curve. So the idea is, let's say we read a thousand word article, 28% of it, we're going to, you know, remember maybe for 24 to 48 hours on average, and then that goes down, right? Then 46% if we read it twice. But if we connect with one another and share experiences and ideas and grapple with the concepts and all, now the number gets 69%. So it's the difference between maybe forgetting 70% and remembering 70% if we engage our peers and talk with one another and um, make it a part of us. And I think that becomes really essential. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, I'm I'm always fascinated with the way you've taken uh, the peer group and uh, taken it to a whole different league, made a science of it, brought uh, human potential into it. And um, I guess that's why I keep calling you every quarter to have this conversation. It's been fascinating this morning, Leo. Thank you so much for, for being with us. I appreciate that very much. And uh, we'll have a return engagement one of these days soon, I hope. Well, thank you so much for having me, Les. It's been fantastic. Loved it. Les, uh, hear from you how people can best connect with you, Leo. Where, where can they find you the easiest? 
Sure. So connect with me on LinkedIn is one way, uh, L-E-O-B-O-T-T-A-R-Y. Or you can go to leobatari.com where you'll get everything you would ever want to know about peer innovation, along with a lot of the work that I do. I'm an advisory board member and opinion columnist for CEO World. There's there's dozens upon dozens of articles there and a number of really, um, you know, I think relevant topics uh, for today and, you know, how we as peers can work with one another to, you know, tackle some of our most pressing challenges. So yeah, come see me there and reach out to me for sure. Good. And um, a lot of people who listen to my podcasts, uh, as you probably know, are coaches. So how do they get in touch with you with respect to peer innovation and the certification? Sure. Um, well, they can. there is a certification tab on the website. So that will give them a bunch of information there. And then, of course, they can reach out to me either through LinkedIn. They could uh, reach out to me at leo at leobatari.com, or they can do it through the website. But number of ways to reach out to me for sure if they want more information about what it's all about and how it may enhance their coaching practice. And if it's right for them, that's a big terrific. I'd love to hear from them. All right. Excellent. All right. Uh, Leo, again, thanks so much and um, hope to talk to you soon. You bet. Thank you. Bye now. This has been On Deck with Les Deck. Thanks for listening. In each episode, we uncover wisdom you can use to grow your business. If you want to learn more about leadership team coaching, visit us on the web at lessdeck.com. If you have questions or anything else you want to say, email us at less at lessdeckconsulting.com. Don't forget to click that subscribe button wherever you get your podcasts. This is a Less Deck production.